Well, I'd like to welcome everybody. Um, I think we're going to begin with Yan um, now. It's a challenge to pronounce your second name. Szyzinski, is it kind of somehow right? He's going to talk a little bit about the background to the um, uh, lectures that, that this forms part of. So would you like to just come up and maybe speak in the microphone, otherwise no more. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Allen and, and LSE for organising this, this event, and thank you, uh, Professor Frank, for, for agreeing to, to speak to us today. Um, we, as Professor, will be uh, will be explaining and, and lecturing in um, just in a, in a second. We live in very interesting and difficult times, not only mentioned with the, the economical climate crisis and. We're trying to, through this series of uh, lectures across the European Union, we're trying to maybe not to look for answers, because that's impossible, I would say, but invite some external experts, external to, um, to UNDP, the European Commission, uh, and, uh, and so on, who can discuss with us at least some, uh, some of the answers to these challenges. The Kapuscinski Lectures was uh, this initiative was started in uh, 2009 by two institutions mostly, the UN Development Programme which I'm representing and the European Commission. Um, the European Commission is mostly, mostly funding it uh, as well. Also to discuss the, the challenges and also some recommendations for the European Development Policy today and, and, and tomorrow. Um, we've hosted a number of eminent, eminent experts uh, across the European Union and uh, in different um, places, starting with the um, actually with the emerging donors, so the the uh, donors from the new member states of the EU, from Central Europe, also from Poland, um, uh, who are who actually were recipients of aid and only now became uh, donors, are becoming donors, and uh, have to face uh, uh, these challenges. And, uh, more, maybe more difficult uh, situation than the, the big donors. And um, why Kapuscinski? Richard Kapuscinski was uh, a Polish writer, reporter, journalist who covered developing, uh, developing countries. Kapuscinski died in 2007. Um, author of The Shadow of the Sun, uh, The Other, and maybe other, other books that you uh, might now remember. Um, he actually brought this, uh, why the series honors uh, Kapuscinski, he brought this knowledge, symptoms, understanding, and uh, picture of developing countries and needs of people and and, uh, and their uh, problems closer to us to better understand also why um, why we should be involved and also helping helping others. Um, named sometimes as the voice of the poor, actually. Uh, as he focused so much on uh, on people, on the individuals, uh, on uh, on uh, people, their uh, their limits, but also their capacities, their dreams, uh, which is now so much important in the uh, also in development uh, cooperation development um, uh, assistance. Um, uh, today we we're happy also to 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 have uh, Miss uh, Rena Meister. Uh, daughter of Richard uh, Kapuscinski with, uh, with us. Um, so thank you very much again for um, uh, to, to LSE for, for hosting this event uh, um, here. As I said, that's one of the series of events 
across the European Union and uh, affect the progress of Um, well, it's a great um, honour to welcome Professor Jan Prompt to come and give his uh, lecture. Uh, he is currently uh, Professor of um, uh, Theory and Practice for International, of International Development at the um, ISS, the Institute um, of Social um, Studies of The Hague. Um, but he's a very well-known uh, politician and diplomat. Uh, he served uh, three times as the Minister uh, for development cooperation for the Netherlands. Um, and uh, during the period when he wasn't in government, he worked for the United Nations, and between 2004 and 2006, he was the special representative um, of Secretary General uh, for Sudan. And uh, in 2006, he, um, his criticisms, his observations of what was going on in Darfur, led him to be removed from the country. But I understand he's not going to tell us anything about that today. He's going to talk more about international development. So I'll hand you over now to Professor Brom and we we'll look forward to um, the discussion afterwards. Thank you, Professor Allen. Could, can somebody switch that off? Hinders me. Is that possible? Um, as soon as I stand yeah. here. Yeah? I like to hold the microphone and then walk up and down. But <laughs> you can take the microphone off and move away from there if you don't like yeah. it. I don't use that. No. No. I don't. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you. Sorry for bothering you. Okay. Okay, thank you, Professor Allen. Ah, that's what I want. I would like to speak today. I gave the title to my to my address, uh, Planet of Great Opportunities, which is uh, a quote from uh, one of his uh, Capuchinsky's last booklets, The Other. Um, I never had the pleasure meeting uh, Richard Kapuczynski uh, in person. But I've read most of his books and I've followed in his tracks, visiting many countries that he had brought to life for his readers. Um, in my work, um, I've benefited from the example given by Kapuczynski um, and from his look at the world, its peoples and its nations. It's a journalistic approach, reflective, beyond the mere description um, of facts and events. He had the eye of an anthropologist, like Marinovsky, whom he held in high esteem, and he had the ethical mind of a philosopher, like the much-admired Levina. Kapuczynski tried to dissect processes of social change as precisely as possible, putting phenomena in a historic context and comparing them with events elsewhere. He did this 
in a scientific manner, objectively, taking distance from culturally determined Western values. But he did not shy away from approaching his findings subjectively, using cosmopolitan values. Such an approach is not common today. In many societies, people increasingly look at other people of a different ethnicity, nationality, religion or belief with suspicion and animosity. In his address on the occasion of a doctorate honoris causa at the Jagiellonski University in Krakow, Poland, 2004, Kapuscinski made a strong plea in favor of the opposite, respecting the dignity of each human being, regardless of cultural differences, and engaging oneself in a dialogue, aiming at mutual understanding and a sense of togetherness. Kapuscinski made this plea also in other addresses, which he brought together in that book, under the title um, Ten Inni, in Polish, uh, means the other, the other person, perhaps a stranger, belonging to a different culture, but anyway, a person, another human being. Many people in his audiences may have agreed with him. For people of high moral spirit, Kapuscinski's pleas in favor of human solidarity sound familiar, reasonable, self-evident. Yet what many people may appreciate as natural is not common wisdom for humankind as a whole. Solidarity beyond borders never has been an all-inclusive value the essence of humankind. Perhaps it never will be. Anyway, not to the extent meant by Kapuscinski in the last lines of his speech in Krakow, quoting another journalist, a literary man, Joseph Conrad, who described solidarity in terms of, I quote, common dreams, joys, anxieties, objectives, illusions, hopes and fears which tie together humankind as a whole, the dead with the living, and the living with the yet unborn. Unquote. Such a grand description of human solidarity as a norm aims high. However, in order to meet the standard, a declaration of values is not sufficient. The human deficit, Christians would call it sinning, is innate. A society in which people have pledged their commitment to high moral standards requires that values, once agreed, are enshrined in law and that its institutions promote and uphold these values, that they guarantee the laws incorporating them, and protect people against erosion of these values and violations of these laws. This is a must, not only in a national society, but also globally. The world needs common values and common institutions. 
powerful institutions lacking shared values will breed disillusion and conflict. High moral values lacking strong institutional protection will breed hypocrisy and exclusion. Let me, in order to make my point, take you back to the first half of the previous century. That half century was marked by two world wars, the first global wars in history. In between those wars, people suffered from a severe economic crisis with global proportions. Those were the years of the rise of fascism. Nazism and communism, not only as ideologies but as cruel dictatorships, with millions and millions of victims. It was the period of the Holocaust, the gravest genocide ever. It was also the century of global imperialism and widespread colonization, wider than before, heyday for the colonizers, downright oppression of the colonized. And the disasters culminated when the first nuclear bomb was thrown. In short, the first half of that century was a catastrophe. The worldwide crisis seemed to take on permanent features of lasting instability and insecurity, more and more violence and brutal violations of human rights. During the 19th century, people had had to endure major catastrophes as well, but in the 20th century, the evil got worldwide proportions. What happened then? Around 1945, our grandparents, and your grand grandparents, um, built a new structure with common values, joint institutions, agreed policy rules, and shared policy instruments. World leaders negotiated a common framework in order to meet common objectives on the basis of mutually shared values. For the first time in world history, such values and rules were accepted, embraced and institutionalized globally on the basis of world consensus. Maybe humankind could only change the course of world history after having suffered from the ordeals of the years before. The awareness grew that these ordeals, if permitted to continue, could destroy civilization. So, in the end, after World War II, the last catastrophe of the early 20th century, a global consensus was reached. This should never happen again. And this conviction became the more vigorous when people became aware of the potential global nuclear annihilation. It was a close call. But anyway, clear decisions were made to head for a different direction. Perhaps this could only have happened due to the new power relations in the world. A multiple power structure would probably have resulted in indecision and further decay. But again, anyway, the United States of America, at that time the strongest world power, was willing to use its power surplus to back up a new world order rather than only its own 
short-term interest. This was unique. It had never happened before in world history. The decisions ushered a new phase in globalization. Globalization not only of economic and technological opportunities, but also of values and institutions in order to serve common global objectives. Six objectives stood out. Peace, avoiding new world wars and major conflict escalations. Security, addressing international domestic conflicts that would endanger world security. Stability, preventing and mitigating world economic, financial, trade and food insecurity stabilities. Development, enabling progress in order to improve the welfare of nations and the life conditions of their people. More food, more employment, higher income, more equal participation. It being understood that unequal access to welfare could result in conflict, violence and insecurity. Freedom of both nations, decolonization, and citizens by fostering processes of emancipation and democratization. And finally, six, protection of human rights. Initially mainly civil and political rights, for instance of minorities and people under dictatorship, and later on also economic and social human rights. There were more objectives, but these six were essential. They could not be accomplished separately. Right from the beginning it was understood that they were related to each other. They had to sustain each other. Violation of each individual objective would endanger also the others. That's the reason why the new order was constructed as an integrated system. The new institutions had to belong to one and the same family. The system of the United Nations. Establishing a world government was politically impossible, because notwithstanding their common objectives, nation-states still had different interests. However, the institutions were given powers to address violations of common objectives. They got explicit mandates, together with rules and procedures of decision-making. They acquired operational capacities to implement decisions. Modus operandi for review, appraisal and appeal was established in order to ensure compliance. All proceedings were based on the newly agreed principles and values of the system. All agreements reached after long negotiations formed together a system of world governance, a body of true international law. International law became the embodiment of the global values. And looking backwards, it would be fair to say that consensus-based international law was a breakthrough in international civilization. The new consensus was based on two main principles. Sovereignty of the nation-state, no country would have the right to intervene in other countries, invade them, impose its will on them and oppress their people. All countries were entitled to full autonomy, provided that they would not use this autonomy to violate the autonomy of other nations. 
Secondly, equal human rights for all. Within nation states, all human beings, without any discrimination, would enjoy the same civil, political, social and economic rights. Individual nations, as well as the international community as a whole, would have a responsibility to uphold and protect these rights. So, the sovereignty of the nation-state was not an objective in itself. It should enable the state, in cooperation with other nations, to preserve the human rights of the citizens and improve their living conditions, their welfare. This two-pillar system was meant to enable the peoples of the world to address root causes of conflict, insecurity, violence and war, and thus to work and live together in peace. The new system, of course, did have a number of built-in flaws, due to the specific way it had been established right after World War II. All countries would be sovereign, but the construction of the Security Council did a lot more powers to some of them. However, at the time, it was the best attainable, and it was a sea change, unprecedented in world history. A world consensus, I repeat, concerning crucial values was agreed. Power was shared. Common interests of humankind were recognized. That is why, I repeat, it is legitimate to call this a breakthrough in civilization. Moreover, the new order and its institutions scored successes. The Third World War was averted. Economic reconstruction after World War II, together with agreed new rules in international finance and trade, made sure that the economic depression of the 30s gave way to stability and growth. Human rights were better kept after 45. There were still many violations, but there was progress. Unmistakably, the sovereignty of nation-states was met through decolonization. In no more than about three decades, most former colonies became independent nations. This was a great achievement of the UN. Though incomplete, formal legal independence has to be complemented by political autonomy and economic self-reliance, promoting social development and people's welfare. This took much more time. However, the gradual emancipation of nations in the new world system went hand in hand with the growing self-esteem of their citizens. As Kapuczynski pointed out, people living in a world that Westerners have looked upon as not only different but also of lesser value, with a lower culture and backward traditions, worthy of conquest, enslavement, conversion and of suppression, or at most benevolent lifting, uplifting from outside, those other people were gradually getting a sense of their own dignity. That process became irreversible. Look at China and the Chinese, 60 years ago and today. Look at the development of India, Vietnam, Chile, 
in Brazil. Look at the quest for autonomy by indigenous people all around the world. Look at Africa in 1950 and at present. Look at the position of Islam, then and now. The process of growing self-esteem is steadfast. The voices are louder and louder. Listen to the people of southern Sudan, Tunisia and Egypt this very year. Where is the world today? 65 years after the birth of the new order in the mid-1940s. In the life of people and in the life of their institutions, 65 years are a long period. Maturity has been reached, experience accumulated, wisdom collected, retirement is drawing near. Without renewal of ideas and innovational structures, stiffening may loom ahead. In innovation is a must. Six decades stand for two working generations, or perhaps three cultural generations. And this, together with ever faster changes in technology, in particular information technology, which alter people's perceptions on society, each new decade implies a challenge to renew after review. Half a century ago, the challenges and priorities were different from today. The technological and economic means were different. The context was different. Witness, for instance, intensified globalization. And last but not least, people's perceptions have changed. What at that time most people considered desirable or necessary is no longer self-evident. Regular reassessment of the aims, character and functions of institutions is essential if we want them to live up to expectations. Otherwise, changes in the technological, economic, social and political environment will render them obsolete, beyond the capacity to renew themselves. That also applies to the system that was established to address the causes of the catastrophes of the first half of the previous century. During the second half of that century, running globalization has blurred the distinction between developed and developing countries, between North and South. There is no distinct third world anymore in terms of economic development. Many developing countries achieve the status of emerging economies. Some of them, including the large economies of India and China, have accomplished annual rates of economic growth which could only be dreamt of 60 years ago. The economic future of Brazil has brightened as well, and quite a number of countries in Africa and South Asia have been able to sustain higher growth rates than during the first two decades after decolonization. During this period, you know, also the ideological conflict between East and West was overcome, the Cold War came to an end, the arms race was arrested, the fear for a third world war between nations subsided. The group of non-aligned countries which had come into existence at the Bandung Conference in '56, has also ceased to exist because there is no reason anymore to declare alignment or non-alignment in political terms. Countries can choose their own path towards political and economic self-reliance without risking political intervention by powers fearing that their sphere of influence will be affected. 
spheres of influence are no longer territorially based or geographically determined. The same globalization that grew to maturity after the fading of the frontiers between North and South and between East and West has for the first time in world history resulted in a real world market facilitated by unprecedented breakthroughs in communication and information technology dwarfing costs of transportation of goods, services, persons, knowledge and ideas enabling people to disregard differences in time and place. After 89, the sky became the limit, economically and technologically, and the rest would follow. So, in 1992, at the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development in Rio de Janeiro, a new spirit of optimism prevailed. World leaders pledged to allocate the world's resources for investment in the reduction of poverty, and in the preservation of the environment. A new agenda was adopted, Agenda 21. The 21st century would be the century of sustainable development. Profit-oriented market forces would work together with public authorities in order to demonstrate a common responsibility for the planet and its people. You may remember the story of Sherlock Holmes, who went on a camping trip with his assistant Watson. After sharing a good meal and a bottle of wine, they retired to their tent for the night. Somewhere in the middle of the night they woke up, and Sherlock Holmes asked his friend, Watson, look into the sky and tell me what do you see? Watson said, I see a fantastic panorama of countless stars. And then Holmes asked, and what does that tell you? And Watson replied, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and planets. <laughs> Allowing for similar chemical distribution throughout the cosmos, it may be reasonably implied that life possibly intelligent life, may well fill the universe. Theologically, the vastness of space tells me that God is great, and we are small and insignificant. Horologically, it tells me that's about 4 a.m. in the morning. Meteorologically, the blackness of the sky. And the crispness of the stellar images tells me that there is a low humidity and stable air, and therefore we are most likely to enjoy a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? And then Holmes retorted, Watson, please, don't you see? Someone stole our tent. Watson saw the parts. But he didn't get the picture. He was fascinated by the promises of a new day, but he didn't observe the dangers. Somebody had taken away his cover, the protection which he had erected against rain, wind, animals in the field and possible other threats. If I look to the future, I do not see a fantastic panorama full of bright stars. On the contrary. I see a cloudy sky. I foresee storm and turmoil. 
Progress made during the last 20 years. Technological breakthroughs, high income growth, detente between the world powers, went hand in hand with major setbacks. More violent conflicts within countries, climate change, international terrorism, a world financial crisis, to mention but a few. These were not isolated incidents. They are structural phenomena, inherent to the path and character of present-day world development. Will this be different in the years ahead? I am afraid not. I foresee that the structural causes of these threats will not diminish as a consequence of globalization, but will become ever more manifest and determine the future. The catastrophes of the early 20th century are behind us. However, there are new challenges, confrontations and insecurities, and they are frightening. Still about 2 billion people live below or just above a decent level of subsistence. Globalization has resulted in a sharp increase in social and economic inequality within all countries. This has created a different north-south divide between people with adequate access to markets and technology and people that not only are exploited or forgotten but left out on purpose, excluded from the market without sufficient purchasing power or resources to invest in order to increase their productivity. They lack access to modernity or to the means necessary to live a life in decency. One third of the world population has been deprived from adequate access to one or more of the essentials, fertile land, clean and safe water, food and nutrition, non-depletable sources of energy, primary health care in order to check maternal death after childbirth and prevent children dying of diseases that easily can be cured, essential medication to enhance life expectancy, basic education in order to secure oneself a place in a rapidly changing society and a healthy habitat. Within all countries, societies have become structurally dualistic and this has resulted in a dualistic world economy. The north-south divide between nations, which prevailed until the turn of the century, has changed. North-south presently is a worldwide divide between classes within all countries, in India and Africa, as well as in Europe and in the United States. Globally, about two-thirds of the world's population belongs to the upper and middle classes, or can at least reasonably expect further emancipation. One-third is living in circumstances which can only be characterized as stagnation or decline. In all countries, those people who are better off and wish to cultivate their comfort lay a heavy claim on the scarce resources of our world. Water and non-renewable energy and a number of minerals, raw materials and other resources, which are essential for material economic growth, are becoming ever scarcer. This scarcity is not only due to physical limits or astronomically high cost of exploration, but also to demographic change, increased demand in general, 
chosen production techniques and revealed consumption patterns. All preferences. All these patterns are structural. They will result in further climate change, global warming and irreversible losses of biodiversity. These scarcities and trends, together with more dense people's settlements in megacities and in ecologically vulnerable rural areas, and greater technological vulnerability, will make countries more prone to disasters. And this is bound to result in more casualties. We may expect that in many parts of the world, including those where natural disasters have been rather exceptional, these catastrophes will become more frequent and have a greater impact. This is an alarming scenario. It is further complicated by its own consequences. Scarcities and inequalities will result in more conflicts and escalating violence. In many parts of the world people will have to compete for survival. Economic and social conflicts will affect tribal, ethnic, religious and other cultural disputes and result in violent clashes. The quest of people for greater respect, larger freedom and more welfare will not hold. Politicization is on the rise. People that have been excluded and suppressed are no longer voiceless. They have found new possibilities to communicate and let themselves hurt. Globalization will boost the pursuit of emancipation. It will also enhance the capacity for sophisticated hardline coercion. In short, the conflict potential is mounting. And at the same time, many nation states, plagued by frequent conflicts, are themselves getting weaker. In Southern Asia, Middle East, Africa and North and Central Latin America, more and more nation states find themselves in a situation of half war, half peace. In these states, regimes cannot easily cope with the conflicts. Due to globalization and to an unholy alliance between trade in drugs, trade in arms, trade in people, mostly women, international crime is spreading and increasing. Often the regimes in these countries feed the conflicts, either through corruption or bad governance, or because they are themselves an offspring of the conflict and take sides. Globalization is also facilitating the spread of conflicts to other parts of the world. Conflicts cannot easily be contained anymore in a specific region, migration, Refugee movements, diasporas, together with easy access to information, unimpeded money transfers and unchecked trade in sophisticated and small arms lead to quick and easy escalation of conflicts, including the spread of international terrorism. Moreover, proliferation of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction can no longer be prevented. Not only regimes that seek international confrontation, but also power groups in disintegration, disintegrating nation-states or insurgents and rebel movements will get access, will get access to such weapons. 
these contests within and between nations can be expected to result in new divides at the world level, following the north-south divide and the east-west divide in the previous century. New confrontations between major world powers, both traditional powers and newly emerging powers, are likely. There will, there will be a scramble for scarce resources. A parallel to this contest, we are witnessing a new confrontation between the West and the rest, in particular the Arab world and the world of Islam. And this confrontation is partly cultural, religious, but no lesser threat to peace and security than the scramble for resources. Cultural and religious conflicts are more difficult to contain than economic conflicts. On top of all this, we are in the midst of a world financial and debt crisis of alarming proportions. This too is due to the character of globalization, which has resulted in the rise of uncontrolled supranational financial powers, propagating values squarely to the principles which had been agreed half a century ago. Those principles of responsible economic behavior meant to ensure balanced international development were undermined by unchecked market forces. They became liable to erosion when public responsibilities were substituted by private capitalist greed. Not only international banks and financial speculators are to be blamed, international oil and mineral companies, chemical and pharmaceutical enterprises, large plantations, tobacco companies, seed producers and food chains are also culpable. Most of these firms are heedlessly putting aside the people, planet, profit commitment of Agenda 21. All threats and challenges which I have touched upon are structural. They are larger than before. They last longer. Not only because they are mutually related and reinforce each other, but also because they are not addressed coherently. This is alarming. However, what should worry us most are not the dangers themselves, but the fact that we have dismantled our capacity to deal with them. The two-pillar system that we had created mid-last century, a global values consensus and law-based international institutions putting those values in force, gave the international community the means to avert further man-made catastrophes. The system was perhaps no more than a clever self-help capacity in case of global threats, but as such it provided some form of common protection. The system functioned as a cover, a tent. Presently both poles are staggering. The values have been eroded and the institutions crippled. The tent has been stolen. It has not been taken care of. The tent got torn and tarnished. Principles of international law do not mean much anymore. Security Council resolutions are but a piece of paper. UN agencies are sidelined. Their position has been taken over by the Group of Twenty and by so-called coalitions of goodwill by no means representative for all people who have sought cover in the tent. 
agencies that had been established to provide some form of protection against instabilities and backsliding had been willfully weakened. International institutions with a mandate to deal with finance, capital, money, investment, food and agriculture, trade, environment, development, human rights, relief and refugees have been played off against each other. Global public common institutions give way to transnational private market powers. Global common security and indiscriminate protection of human rights have become insubordinate to arbitrary perception of national security. National security is regarded as a political precondition for attaining other objectives, including human rights. Security increasingly seems to be understood as an absolute and superior value in no way dependent on other values, such as justice or equality. Absolute security is security getting out of proportion. It does not allow for nuances. It's biased towards end-of-pipe solutions, such as military means to impose security, rather than the political and social-economic means to address root causes of security. Insecure. National security, rather than being understood as an integral element of world security for all, has become a concept that excludes the other. My security is endangered by you, or might be endangered by you, I don't trust you, this entitles me to exclude you, I may even deliver a preemptive strike. So, attack before possibly being attacked. The preemptive strike is back again in the international system. Once again, war has been given a chance. Security, instead of being perceived as a common public good, has become a private commodity that can be bought and sold on the market. There is no guarantee whatsoever that commercial enterprises selling security will live up to the principles of human rights and sustainability, or that these private companies selling security have an interest in peace. The killing of bystanders in the name of national security, for instance with the help of drones, whether these people are innocent or not, is accepted as collateral damage. Collateral damage when applied to people, is dehumanizing. The priority of national security breeds a new culture, a culture of fear. Other human beings are taken for possible enemies and looked upon as second-rate people. Beautiful new concepts have been introduced, such as human security, human development, precaution, sustainability, the responsibility to protect and other ideas, opening a delightful perspective to the Dr. Watsons of this world. However, in practice they do not mean much. The political market mechanisms of today have resulted in less precaution, less security less sustainability and less protection.
the new concepts are fashionable, but the gap between theory and practice has widened. Hypocrisy has crept into the propagated values. The same rights, liberties and responsibilities are believed to have a different meaning for the other than for ourselves. Striving for security by violating the security of others has become legitimate again. The new world order that our grandparents had carefully built after 45 in order to put a hold to this has become paralyzed. There is no tent anymore. It has been taken away, not by passers-by deep in the night, but in broad daylight, from within, by those who felt the tent a straitjacket rather than a shield. You see, but you do not observe, Sherlock Holmes said to Watson in another book in Conan Doyle's Scandal in Bohemia. You see, but you do not observe. Watson was not an average citizen. Admittedly, he was the sidekick of Sherlock Holmes, but he was an excellent doctor, surgeon, intelligent, an expert, an intellectual. However, looking around, he saw, but he didn't get the picture. World leaders and opinion leaders seem to behave in a similar fashion. We look around, forward, upward, and still consider the sky the limit. Admittedly, there are some clouds, but we do not see a storm, and we do not observe that the cover has gone, and that we have lost our common coping capacity. Today, the motto seems to be again, everybody for himself, others may perish. In order to reverse this trend, we need a radical turn on two fronts, values and institutions. This is the challenge today. Drastic reassessment of values, fundamental innovation of institutions, not because of the 60 years life cycle behind us, but because of impending world insecurities in the 60 years ahead, which threaten the sustainability of the earth and the social fabric of humankind. We do not have to start from scratch. Innovation and renewal, preventing decay, include restoration and reform. Reform of institutions, strengthening of values, Shoring the world's social fabric, in other words, preserving the tent. The values themselves are not the main problem. They are two-tongued interpretation, the disregard for international law, the ambiguity of the so-called common objectives. They are the bigger problem. This requires research, education and political mobilization. Research and science can help citizens to get better insight into realities and scenarios and to choose a different position than that of mere onlookers or even ostriches burying their head in the sand. Mere bystanders look, see, but do not observe. As citizens, we should be challenged to detect and deduce, to understand connections and the historical context. 
However, citizens' views are easily manipulated by commercial powers that seduce and persuade them to consume and consume ever more, whatever the consequences. Citizens are also easily manipulated by political groups with an interest in power for its own sake and which try to keep this power by means of divisionary policies and discrimination. Commercial groups use the channels of value transfer, in particular media, to bombard citizens with commercial messages. They claim to know what people really want. Political interest groups bombard citizens with a similar populist message. You need security above everything else and we will take care of that. Along with these bombardments, values such as sustainability, human rights, justice, equity and mutual responsibility lose out to private profits, entertainment, market efficiency, winner takes all and asymmetrical Citizens also have been made believe, to believe that society is not makeable and that the future is by definition unknown territory. When people believe so, they will accept any new technological option as progress and agree that everything that can be made should be made, whatever the risks. Society seems to expect that future generations will be able to find the technological solutions for all problems, including the problems that we create and casually shift on to them. Nuclear waste, nuclear weapons, drones, genetically modified organs, pesticides, bioindustry, fossil fuel, fossil fuel based energy, biomass energy, hydropower based on large dams, polluting chemicals and so on. It's a rather frivolous attitude. Not every change means progress. Innovation is not an aim in itself. It should serve a purpose. Not for market partners, but for society. Reform of institutions, including the United Nations, and the way decisions are made within that system, should guarantee a just and equal consideration of all interests and in particular the interests of two categories of people. First, the poorest of the poor. In the production system of the last two decades, which are primarily based on capital and technology rather than people and nature, the poor have been excluded and exploited no less than in earlier phases of world capitalism. Second, the yet unborn, the future generations, our grandchildren and grand-grandchildren, people in the underbelly of the world's economy, and people that once will come out of the shadows of the future, have one thing in common, they do not yet have a voice, but they have a claim. Sixty years ago, a new order was established to make such a claim manifest, to declare legitimacy of claims, and to find ways and means honoring rightful claims. That order is the tent that had been set up to provide protection to these two groups in particular. Today, both groups 
seem to have been turned out of the tent. And those who are, those who remained inside do not attach much value anymore to the protection provided by the tent. Instead, they take it down. Kapuczynski described our world as a planet of great opportunities. It's our responsibility to grasp these opportunities in the interest not only of ourselves but also of the other. Using this terminology and quoting Joseph Conrad, Kapuczynski made very clear that he meant humankind as a whole, the dead with the living and the living with the yet unborn. Thank you. powerful state that for various reasons decided to be generous um, politically and economically and shape the kind of new world order. Can you describe how now there are so many voices it's impossible to count them and more on the way? Um, and describe the period of kind of affluence where people, particularly in rich countries, haven't experienced these things. So, would a conclusion be that you're very pessimistic that what you're calling for is any, in any way possible without some kind of horrendous upheaval out of which one powerful voice emerges? Yes, I am very pessimistic. I am very, I am very pessimistic. Definitely so. Um, um, I'm not only a researcher, I'm a politician. I'm more a politician than a researcher, I would say. Um, in my political talks, I've always tried to make clear to my own electorate and to young people that you have to be aware of the problems anyway, that you should not think that things are better than they are because then you're fooling yourself. That's number one. And the second thing which I always have 
understood and also mentioned to people is the greater the problem is, the harder you have to work to avert further decay. If you would be optimistic, if the problems are not as bad as they are, then you can fly backwards. So I'm pessimistic, but for me pessimism is a basic reason to work hard. Politically, analytically, and otherwise, in education, etc. To engage in, in discussion and debate. That's why I said at the end you need research, analyze, discussion of course, and not everybody has the right views, and please contest me. Yes? Research, education, which is everything, is, is communication, etc. And mobilization of yourself and others together. The more pessimistic you are, the greater your, the mandate which you have been given as a citizen, as a human being, to work hard. But isn't there a contradiction between calling for more education, more voices, more people to articulate their views, and the thrust of your analysis is that seems to be that there has to be a dominant we were, as you were quoting, uh, in a unique position at the time, uh, for two reasons. We had all these sport deals behind us, and we were aware, or those who took the decisions were aware. And at that time we were very lucky, there were not many necessary in order to take a decision, and others were following. And they followed, by the way. It was, it's amazing. Uh, how wise the decisions were. Speaking about Africa, all African states which became independent states accepted the frontiers which we had drawn for them, without them. Yes? It was a certain degree of wisdom at the same time. Okay. Of course. Um, and also the steps forward, even in a liberal system of international trade and finance, it was very liberal, um, were accepted by others and gradually improved. Yes. Um, so there was a lot of wisdom at the time. We are not in that unique situation at the moment uh, because we have not behind us the ordeals of the past. By the way, many do, but they don't, don't have a voice. Yes. So the important thing is to bring them in and to make clear to us who belong to the middle class what their ordeals are, because they are ordeals. In terms of a low life expectancy and insecurity and climate change, we are shifting all these ordeals to them, and we hardly want to know about it. So there are ordeals; they have to be brought in. That is one and number two. Yeah, of course, it is not a unique situation whereby one or two countries can take the decision. So it's more difficult. Leadership is more difficult nowadays. But politically, I always try to say again to people, everybody's a leader. Everybody. Yeah? Um, in your own university, school, class, work, family, whatever, environment, take a lead. Um, and you got so much from your fathers and grandfathers eh, who did important things intellectuals such as Capuchinsky and others. So it is not so difficult to take an intellectual lead and not just to follow the 
the commercial story. Everybody is to blame, uh, definitely. It, it is no individual person. You know, it is a kind of a, a, a bureaucracy representing a middle class which is taking the easy decisions. I give an example which you wouldn't expect perhaps, but in all our individual democratic systems, nations, yes, we have bureaucracies with ministers of agriculture, ministers of finance, ministers of trade, ministers of economic affairs, Ministers of Environment, they all have a kind of a, a common international organization and they deal with each other. But the same country is sending different signals through different representatives to different international organizations and meetings and they are paralyzing each other. That's why I mentioned as an example they are being played against each other. My country does that here, and I know yeah, that's being done in the U.S. is even done more than anywhere else because of scale. Scale is a problem, by the way, okay. also. Yeah. In the, the larger the country, the greater the differences of the, the lack of communication also. It is one of the issues. That is why I always propose in my reform proposal of the UN, and I am not coming forward with something completely new, that's why I said reform from within it necessary. I always say start with the intergovernmental machine, not with the institutions. Yes? Governments always say the, the UN has to change, the secretariat has to change, the bodies have to change. All the bodies and the meetings of the bodies are the result of decisions of the government. Start with the intergovernmental machinery and from there you can change the system. It's a, it's a suggestion, it's a proposal which I consider to be uh, quite important by the way. So I gave you two different um, um, answers. I could give you more but these are important. Yeah, well, it's, I am in favor of a reform of the Security Council, definitely, uh, because it is at the moment still representing uh, well, the power relations of the past. It has been changing, but not enough. And my European proposal is the following. And that's difficult in my country, uh, which has become as anti-European Union as this country is, like uh, used to be. We do not need two European vetoes in the Security Council. I don't think we can do away with the veto system at the moment, step by step. We do not need two in Europe. It's nonsensical to have a UK and a French veto in the Security Council. It's reflecting the past. So, organize a European political union, which we will have 
to do anyway in order to deal with the financial and economic crisis of Europe. You need the wisdom to do so. And say we need only one. We give one to the rest of the world. Yeah? Yeah? And that's, so you always blame the UN and the other world and the other continents that they cannot come to agreement amongst each other. We cannot in Europe. We would be wise if we would say Europe. Become one strong union anyway for our own interest's sake, okay, but also to be able to cope with climate change uh, and international instability, the world financial crisis, with all the huge uncontrolled financial powers, we need to do that together at a high level. Okay, so, and that is so. It's a very important and difficult step within Europe, but anyway, it's a step whereby Europeans could look to their to themselves and not only to the rest of the world. No. I was actually making a different point. I mean, I, I, the point was very well made. And I think certainly we'd be one which would be working for. Sweep, you didn't pick up more on some of the real achievements over this period. The eradication of smallpox and other killer diseases, or at least a significant reduction. Uh, the fact that we have more, more people living under democratic regimes than ever, historically, even if one might question how deep they go. Um, within particular countries, many more people do many remain in poverty. So there are a number of positives which you didn't touch on. I think you might touch them more given the fact that you have been active in public life in a very important institution. You played a key role in it. Um, and my question therefore is where are the sources that are going to drive the, the creation of those values that you spoke so eloquently about? To what extent do does global philanthropy or the aid agencies that we've both been associated with or global civic initiatives, what role might they play in contributing to that renewed set of values? Or indeed, are there perhaps new institutional initiatives from within the emerging world? New sources of optimism and philanthropy that are only just manifesting. Okay, you are right. I I could have mentioned more achievements. I did mention quite a few, okay? but uh, I could have mentioned more. Um, definitely, um, it's a sweep. Um, as a matter of fact, if I look at the last 65, 70 years, then I see a period whereby the world on the basis of those institutions and those values um, was running forward, not fast enough to cope with the problem, but anyway, it was running forward. Yes. Um, slow, but and, and the problems were getting bigger and bigger, but we tried to cope with it. For me, the culmination was 
the end of the Cold War and the Rio conference, which these three years, if you look back to the period 1989, 1992, it was a period of high spirit. Then we made promises. As I said, we are now investing in preservation of the natural environment, Brundtland Report Plus. We are now going to make an end to poverty. Now, in my view, we didn't do it. Yeah? We paid lip service. You know, I, I, I chaired the World Climate Negotiations. Yeah? Uh, and I think we were successful. But nothing has been done. Not been done. I don't think we are going to meet the Millennium Development Goals. It was the last promise. We went through 50 years of promises. I was in all these talks and negotiations. Quantified promises. Education for all. Etc. Everything. We never have met any. Um, at the last moment, that in the turn of the centuries, uh, second gen of the UN calls everybody there. Now, half world poverty. I'm not going to do it. Uh -huh. So there are achievements, definitely small parts. There is river blindness, yeah? But we are, it is not enough. It is too little. It was, it was late. It was too late. And the problems are getting bigger. And that is what my point is. Poverty was collateral damage. Now we do it on purpose. My main worry is that we are keeping people poor because the world middle class wants to keep the status quo. Let me go back to your country, which you know quite well as Sudan. I, I have been in Sudan since the early 70s. I know. Sudan, Khartoum, Port Sudan, it was boom. Investment. Not only in a good infrastructure, education system, really quite exemplary. Hospitals, quite good. A lot of allocation of government spending on important social issues, like education and, uh, and health, for the militants, for the people of those who took, had the power. Not for girls in wherever, the east or the west or the south, yes? Um, primary education or the diseases of, of poverty. This is Canada. It is child. It is everywhere. Yes. We do more or less the same. In a different way. Of course we are rich, but my country, yes. Our middle class is 90% of everybody. And in Sudan it is uh, maybe uh, 30. Yeah? We have people who do not have any chance of survival in West Africa, yeah? because we bombard these countries with agricultural products which are always cheaper for them than the products which they produce. 
be cheaper because we invest in technology and also in subsidies. Um, we export CO2, which are having consequences also for their livelihoods. Not now, but anyway. And if they arrive here, they are in the underbelly, and they do not get good access to our education system and to doctors. Yes. Um, and we do not want to invest in education and health for that underbelly. Because it's costly. Uh, the cost-benefit relations have a time dimension. Yes. Um, and those who are taking decisions, in particular in a situation where we have to, we have to cut our budget, we declare ourselves because of economic stability for us, not for them. It always results in not dealing with the needs of those who do not have access to decision making. The same for Sudan, India. We, we always speak about Africa as extremely poor, and it is extremely poor, still despite uh, high growth rates. But the poverty in India and in Pakistan and Bangladesh is disastrous. It's a two-digit growth, 10, 11 percent, but there's hardly any change over there. So it is the dualistic economy um, which has become even more dualistic because of the scarcity of resources and also of money and, we, and also of power. And that is for me quite alarming. It is against the values which we did embrace at that time. We are speaking about human development and human security and responsibility to protect us. It's beautiful. But the reality is different. And that is why there is such a hypocrisy in it. Now, and then, finally, I see and hear many people in Africa, the Middle East, and Southern Asia that they know this and that they protest. Yes? Uh, that has also some specific consequences. Now, the positive globalization is there. And I'm, I'm in favor of it as, as long as globalization is full globalization, not only economic and technolog technological, but also social, environmental, institutional, etc. It is one important thing which is even that's the fact that information, data, and values are being spread all around the world. It's very important to keep that Yes, even the government wants it. That one main hope at the moment that there's a young generation everywhere in the world, everywhere, which is having a different attitude. No longer the perks and the careers, which are considered to be the most important thing by the present young generation. It is identity, it is, it is, it is dignity, it is uh, having a voice, um, and there is also a kind of an eagerness to communicate with others. Of course, many young people do not, because they are being manipulated by commercial powers and by rightist political groups, uh, to, to name just that. Uh, 
so many young people. So, and there is a kind of communication also with the young generation in, in Middle Eastern countries. If there is any hope, and I see a kind of a cultural period. There is a period whereby 20, 30 years, these values are dominant, and then there is a young generation which takes distance from the dominant values of the previous generation. We want to do things differently. Maybe it is... Um, Wishful thinking, but make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've got two, two, two things I'd like to say. One is that as you were talking then, I was thinking, well, Charles Dickens' description of I have an answer. Say something else. I, say no, something but yeah, but I have an answer to this because that is because that you. Why did at the moment I'm, I'm trying to I'm watching Bleak House, which right. is a BBC. Yeah. Uh, there you see that it's good. Um, now, what what do you see? You see some people who are belonging to the aristocracy who are interested also in the faith. That happened in industrial revolution. As a matter of fact, the entrepreneurs came to the conclusion that it is. Was not in their interest to keep to keep uh, wages low, etc. Because for economic reasons, you need to sell. You need to sell, and the people organized themselves. So you had two forces. The people fought for it, and those who had a good life came to the conclusion that it was stupid to continue inequality. That is the whole history of social welfare states. That's why beverage. Uh, came with his ideas. That's by the way, also the reason why, why Keynes came with his ideas. It's always a combination. I think in the world market that also is going to happen. At a certain moment, you will need to put. But within the nation states, the time needed to come to that realization was brief. And in the world economy, it's a long period because there is so much purchasing power all around the world. Cost of marketing, of transportation, to tap the purchasing power here in the UK, to the people in Korea and in Argentina. So it will happen, but it will take decades and decades before the same mechanism in the economy is going to function. And that's a risky period. Because as long as these people will have to wait, Moreover, they cannot fight. They're being excluded. People in the Industrial Revolution could fight because they were exploited. So they were using the strike itself. People who are in a situation whereby you don't need their purchasing power and you don't need their labor power because of technological development, they don't have a basis anymore to fight. That means that more than in the past, you need people in the middle classes themselves to take the position of those people in Blake House who went to them to do something. You cannot only depend on action from below. It's a theory, but it's, I see that this, that this is happening. Um, moreover, those who have power, 
and who are rich have also the means to oppress. That's why I said in one sentence, globalization is also enhancing the capacity of rather brutal oppression. You see that happening. What's happening in Afghanistan and, and in the Middle East so far? Hmm? Um, so you need to, to break through. You need to do that in Europe itself and in the Jewish Come to the middle class. If to say we do want something different, we want to put question mark behind the goodness of our own system. In the interest of, and that's why I like Kapuscinski's together. reform of the system going on and the ICC is a step forward. The first discussion about the ICC took place already in the 40s, so we had to wait 50 years. Uh, so I'm very pleased that we have it at the moment uh, and it has to work. I think they are making many mistakes. Oh yeah, they are making a mistake. We uh, also made a mistake with regard to Uganda, and, and uh, but they are there and you have to follow what Ocampo is saying. Even if you think that he is making a mistake, you have to follow it. That's why I have said, and I understand that in the UK, in the US, now the governments are both are thinking of leaving him aside, uh, because they want to buy his cooperation with regard to the yeah, continuation of the peace between North and South Sudan. Uh, and I think that is against the values of the system. Yeah. Even if Ocampo made a mistake, and I think he did, due process has to take place. Otherwise you thought to invent again the working of that system. So do it. And don't let him get away with anyway showing up. Um, Tell me why you think it was a mistake. Oh yes. Okay. Oh yes. Uh, in my view, it was a mistake in terms of. Firstly, I don't think Okama can prove that Bashir was the Octor Intellectualis in legal terms. He said so. He did not say he is politically responsible being the president for what's going on. No, he said he was the mastermind who took all the decisions. He never has provided the international community with the proof and I don't think he has it and that will that will be a major problem in the, in the process. That's number one. Number two, he strengthened the power of Bashir by going to Bashir right away rather than going step by step further. There were so many people culpable, the perpetrators, for what was going on and gradually who could have come close to Bashir. Uh, 
now going to be right away. Everybody was aligning behind his, in his position. Strength. So that was Thirdly, uh, there was a major problem with regard to genocide, whether it was genocide or not. Uh, the debate, the UN said there is no genocide, uh, whether, whether it's true or not, but that was your official position. He said it is, and, that, uh, and the, the judges said no. So a long discussion, but giving a lot of freedom for the lawyers for Bashir that this was not uh, taking place. So he made these and some other mistake. At the same time, it was decided. He didn't issue the warrant. No. He provided evidence. Definitely. The judges in yeah, okay, but that, so it was the judges and but then the way it was the system. But also that surely this is an example of what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and not just coming from the north. I mean, the International Criminal Court for all sure. its faults came into being yeah. because so many African states ratified yeah. the Charter, sure. forced it into being. Yeah. So and I, I would see it as a voice coming, if you like, from outside the system, pushing yeah. it in a direction which is maybe quite problematic, but surely relates to what you're talking about. Sure. That's why I'm in favor of the ICC. I was very strongly in favor of the ICC. I was very strongly in favor of getting the ICC also to The Hague so that it anyway could function. Uh, um, so it has to end in my view. When there is such a procedure, you have to stay away as a politician. Uh, that's what, because if you do not stay away the policy, if you are going to compromise again, you are violating the values of the system. So I can say as an individual person that I think he made mistakes, but anyway, that is only a view. But as soon as a government is saying we do not want this to continue because we need Bashir, uh, that's also what uh, the Dutch government said uh, a couple of months ago, we need do away with a major step forward which you uh, had achieved. It also in value and institutional and international law. You have to let that procedure, the probe, uh, get forward. That was my view on, on the ICC. So I hope, and I was already very cross when I saw that Ban Ki-moon, of all people, went two weeks after went to a conference in, uh, in the Middle East, shaking hands with President Bashir, which meant it, was a, it made legitimate the decisions of all the countries in that part of Africa to accept it. The system was shooting itself. Drinks or something, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, thank you very much. You're welcome.